Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to Griefcast with me, Carrie Ad Lloyd. Griefcast is a place to talk, share and laugh about the peculiar human process of death and grief. Each week I talk to a different person about their experiences of grief and death as we remember someone that they have lost along the way. Whether it was a long time ago or you've just joined the club. Welcome to Griefcast. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey Griefsters, I hope you're having an okay week wherever you're listening from. If you have joined me thanks to the Spotlight editorial programme run by Apple Podcasts, welcome. Uh, Spotlight have chosen Griefcast this month to support. They think it's a show that you will enjoy and we are very, very excited that they have done that. So if that has led you to listening to my voice wherever you are, hello, you are very welcome. This is a show about grief and death and as we say at the end of every show, you are not alone. This week I'm joined by an extraordinary person. His name is Christopher Hughes. Not only is he a death services professional, uh, he's a celebrant, he's a druid, and he's a drag queen. He's the only Welsh language drag queen, also known as Maggie Noggy, which we do talk about. Um, this chat with Chris was just, yeah, really, really amazing. I'm, I'm so glad that you're going to get to hear it. Chris came in to talk to me about all sorts of things, um, about his sister who passed away when she was 22, his grandma who very recently this year just passed away and his dad as well. And please do stay to the very end if you would like to hear a little clip of the incredible Margaret, Christopher's nine or nan uh, or grandma, however you want to say it, but in Welsh they say the nine. Um, It's really, yeah, it's a very special moment and I hope you enjoy. This is the first time I've listed this amount of jobs that are this fascinating, so I'm excited about this. I'm here with Christopher Hughes, who is a Welsh language drag queen, a death service professional, uh, an author, a druid, and a funeral celebrant. <laughs> Christopher, I, I think like there couldn't be a more perfect guest for my show. <laughs> like, I'm like, you're ticking every single box for a guest. Uh, it, kind of, it kind of sounds as if I've just made all that stuff up, though, doesn't it, really? <laughs> 
really does. How could that possibly be true? But I can assure you it really is. It's quite true. I don't even know. There's so much in it I want to talk about. But obviously this is Griefcast, so I want to talk about the grief side of it. But um, Mm. like... (laughs) What's it like being a Welsh language drag queen? I can't, I can't. Did you see? I was like, this got to death. And I was like, no. Uh, yeah, let's start with the drag. Start yeah. with the drag. Um, it's actually really, it's quite different to being, I used to be a Manchester kind of drag queen, right, an English yeah. speaking drag queen, because it wasn't really the call for it here in Wales. Yeah. But then all of a sudden, somehow or another, I got into Welsh television and became the only Welsh drag queen on Welsh national television. So I ended up with my own TV series. We finished season two last year and all sorts of other programming. And she's become a little bit of a family figure, a very family friendly figure, which is so anathema when you think of the majority of drag queens that can't be categorised as family friendly usually. And um, and she really is. Her name's Maggie Noggy. So it's Maggie a play Noggy on words is on the... <laughs> so good. Like people, if you, yeah, if, explain why it's so good because it's so good. So so Maggie Noggy is a play on the words on the word Mabinoggy, which is the corpus of Welsh mythology. So of course she's a mythological figure. She's yeah. a glamazon. So she's she's immortal, just like the stories themselves. She's the spirit of Wales, <laughs> inhabited in glitter, it. sequins, and impossibly high heels which give me the most amazing calves on the face of the planet wow <laughs> it's wow. quite amazing it, well, and I, yeah. I love being a welsh language drag queen so i get to do all sorts of stuff like go to the the youth i which is the cultural movement that's all to do with music and art and crafts and judge competitions for wow. color or co- for for makeup and Style Amazing. and fashion and stuff. Have they added crazy. that to the Eisteddfod now? Makeup, a little glow up challenge. That's amazing. I love mm. it. Oh my god. Oh yeah. And drag queens. <laughs> and about the Eisteddfod, of course. Oh my god. I love it. I mean, I'm a massive. I'm yeah. I'm very into. Well, it sounds like cheap, but I have watched every single episode of Drag Race, including the bad series. Um, mm. Oh right. Okay. We won't you know, that. No, we won't mention them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the ones that have let me down recently. Um, but yeah, that's just... When I saw your name, Maginogi, I was like, oh, that's so good. That's so good. But yeah, obviously, if you don't know the Maginogi or, or Maginogi, <coughs> however you say it properly, um, I'm feeling very conscious now of saying all my Welsh wrong. Um, <laughs> and if you haven't read the Maginogi, never heard of it, it's it's amazing. I love that oh, book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Certainly Google it. M-A-B-I-N-O-G-I. Yeah. yeah Maginogi. And, um, but, you know, people often... People will often say to me, how on earth do you reconcile your life as a, you know, a death service professional, which is quite serious, your life as a druid, which is, I write about quite highbrow and profound stuff about spirituality and animism and polytheism. And then I'm a drag queen and people think that they're all kind of counterproductive or in diametrical opposition Mm. one to the other, but they're genuinely not. They're all like coping mechanisms that help me you know, like traverse this really weird world that I inhabit that's full of raw human emotion and and that raw human condition of grief, bereavement and loss and all of those little categories and little boxes in my life, they all help me deal with it so that I can deal with other people. So even my drag is all about like the transformation of my anxiety Mm. into joy and also, I suppose, by proxy of people who come and 
listen or watch a Maggie Noggy show, they also have their anxieties transformed into joy just for that one hour where they can just forget. And it's, and Maggie Noggy acts as a catalyst for me. She's almost like a pressure cooker that allows me to deal with the horror and the grief and the raw emotion that I get in my professional capacity working for the coroner and just allows me to, you know, to just to, to pop off and allow that emotion to be turned into something that can be directed or redirected through humour. And people often think that I do it for the sole function of entertaining other people, but actually it all started by trying to soothe and mm. appease my own pain. And it all came from that. And I always think that good humour, good comedy, always comes from pain, comes yeah, from trauma. Yeah. And it comes from that raw emotion. And I love it. I just love it. It, it just works so well. It's the best medicine. <laughs> and it's interesting because, I, you know, the fact that you're so, as you said, a, a celebrant, a funeral celebrant. And to me, like, to, to be able to do a job like that, and even, you know, whatever way you choose it to do it in a secular fashion or a religious fashion, what you're set to stand in front of people and say, I will guide you through this, actually mm. is a very what drag queens do. <laughs> of yes. stand in front of people in a slightly unusual costume that everyone else isn't wearing and with a funny great hat probably or a great wig, something <laughs> on your head and go, hey guys, follow me. I think I know how to get through exactly. this. Like they're very linked. It's very like, it's very leadery. Really, and when you think you know, um, a, a funeral service is a ritual. Yeah, it's the ritual of causing the individual to be transferred from the ranks of the living to the ranks of the dead, or from the the ranks of being present to the ranks of being an ancestor. So it's all about ritual, and of course, theatre was the original form of ritual, mm. or ritual was the original form of theatre, should I say? So they're all they're all really beautifully interlinked. Yeah, and entertainment in any form. It's also a kind of a ritual. It, it has a formula, it has a beginning, it has an end. It has this rising of emotion in the middle. Not that dissimilar to a funeral, really, yeah. except that, you know, there's there's a person in a box that's not truly present in a funeral. But it's um, they're, they are oddly linked. It's still a, a form of performance. Yeah, I think people sometimes underestimate how much we, we all perform. Like how, mm. you know, you don't have to be a performer to be part of a performance like we're all doing like yeah like that great exactly. Rue, Rue quote isn't it like everyone's born naked or the rest is drag which the I always I always sort of because when I first heard it I was like <laughs> oh wow <laughs> yeah yeah because you can look at a drag queen and be like oh they're so they're like you know a, this beautiful bird of paradise like I'm not like that like that's not me yeah. that's this other world and you're like no everybody is doing a certain version of it exactly um, so exactly. Christopher who who are we remembering today to bring it back to our favorite topic of grief so this was a bit of a, a, a peculiarity for mm. me because i wanted to remember my little sister so i might have to be greedy and actually pop in somebody else because i lost my grandmother last week oh i'm so sorry and my grandmother margaret oh gosh she was she was my comedic inspiration she was she was absolutely crazy, <laughs> so eccentric and so beautifully and naturally comedic. And she'd had she'd had a tremendously traumatic life you know, being raised in London. She was raised in Dulwich in London during the war. Wow. In front, she was born in 1929. She was, she was 92 when she died. And wow. she just she was a mistress of one liners. <laughs> and it seemed that from my relationship with my nine, it was it was always this. Um, and nine oh. is Welsh for grandmother, just to, yeah. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she, yeah. Yeah. So she she seemed to use humour in a way that offset the the trauma and the horror that she had seen during the war and you know being raised in abject poverty. She lost her first husband. He was twenty nine when he died. They'd only just moved into their new house. She had three young kids. My father being one of them. She just had this life of of just abject poverty and trauma, mm. and yet she was so funny. She was insanely funny so I used to steal all of her material <laughs> and and turn them ever so slightly to my advantage as a drag queen and so she had two different types of cancer she had bladder cancer which was pretty low grade and every year she'd go in for what they call a scoop and burn where they would scoop the tumors out and then you know like cauterize yeah, the area yeah. and every time they did that they bought her 12 months wow and she really enjoyed those 12 months but this last May you could tell that it had broken her a bit. Mm. And she had another form of lymphoma that was also spreading. And, and I was aware that she was in for suffering. And lo and behold, on my father's birthday, the 17th of July, she had a massive heart attack. Wow. And she died within hours of that heart attack on the day my father was born. But my father died in 2005. She never really got over my father's death. Wow. And what I love is, is that she had a good death mm. and and i think sometimes we underestimate that or, or don't give enough credit to the fact that some deaths can be really good yeah yeah and hers was a good death because it meant that she she wasn't going to suffer the the degradation of her body through the cancer eating away at her so she avoided that suffering but also the beautiful thing about her death was that her death was truly the true definition of dying of a broken heart. Mm. She'd upset herself so much when it came to my father's birthday to the and, and to all of the memories that came with that. And on this particular birthday, it just was too much for her. Yeah. And I mean, her it, heart broke. You know? I think it's really, I think, and you only know this if you've seen it, because otherwise it, it, you know, it sounds ridiculous, mythical. Um, my grandpa, my worst grandpa, Bertie, um, he died of a broken heart. So he, my dad died in the April and he died in the December. And I mean, no, that's not on the, the death certificate. But yeah, he just, he became a shell of a person. Like he just couldn't, mm. I could, and he kept saying mm. to me, it's not right. It's just not right. It's just not right. Oh, that's all he'd say. And this yeah. was a very gregarious, talkative, uh, charming Welsh man, as is all you can imagine. Right, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think when you've seen it happen, it, it is the only thing you want. You you know, like, mm. obviously, there's, like you said, it's a heart attack or it's these things, it's this or that. Mm. Or, when it's listed, like, oh, every organ just failed. <laughs> and you're like, yes, yeah, they yes. didn't want to live. And and that's not to say that it's possible for everybody. Not everyone can make that choice. And uh, who knows? The human body is a very strange thing. But, yeah, I think when you've seen yeah. it close, it's really, it's very obvious, isn't it? You're like, yeah, that's what. They couldn't take exactly. anymore. They were in pain, yeah. a different kind of emotional pain. Exactly. And it's, it's so obvious. Yeah. And that phrase, mm -hmm. good death, I only have learned it for doing the show. And I wonder if, because of the work you've done, when you're, when you're not into death, when you are, death is <laughs> close to you, um, you see or talk about it on a daily basis. 
and having done this show and having spoken to some people I've been like wow that was a good death and you know and often I think people are a bit ashamed like, like yeah I know don't tell anyone like if you have a good birth <laughs> or like a child that sleeps it's anything like yeah I know they just sleep but we don't don't tell anyone obviously it's awful and we, we're, we're so lucky we, we mustn't let anyone know um but good deaths do exist and I think it's important they do. that we they do. yeah celebrate that as well of like yeah someone yes, can they do not have suffering but- but, you know, unfortunately, I mean, I, I, I am a death service professional, so I work in a coroner's mortuary where I perform autopsies on the bodies of the recently deceased and also care for the bereaved who have interactions with with our particular department. But at the same time, whilst I'm, I feel very privileged to be a part of that, um, I don't want to say industry. That sounds really odd, doesn't <laughs> but it? But I know I do call it the death industry because it's, yes. it's sort of like what else to call it? Like... But I mean, I think what we mean by that is anyone who works near people who are breed or dead bodies, like yes. Yes, grease exactly. psychotherapists, you know, intensive yes. care nurses, like we're all part of an industry that is, is exists because people die. Exactly. Yes. But there's also, there's also a dichotomy that exists within that because I'm also part of the machine of, the, of not only for the industrialization of death, mm. but also the medicalization of death as well. Death used to be so apparent. It was mm. in the home. It was part of the heart of the home all the way up until you got to 1860 and with the sensibilities of the Victorian era and the rise of public mortuaries where the dead were taken away from the living and they were hidden away. Whereas they'd always been a part of our lives, an integral aspect of our lives. And now we pump our deceased bodies full of embalming fluid because God knows that we don't want them to look dead mm-hmm. we want them to look as if they're asleep and yet there's an inherent beauty and something that's very natural in the countenance of a corpse that tells you this person is dead this person is gone wow, they're yeah. no longer with us so there's so much that's that's changed within the the death industry itself that has caused us to to become viscerally separated or insulated from all that is visceral from all that is deathly and gloomy and doomy and all of that and yet that kind of prevents us from being to being able to acknowledge and perceive that there is such a thing as a good death and that Mm. they should be celebrated and and that hopefully we can all be or we can all have a good death Mm. and you know and the definition of a good death I think is where like like my grandmother her emotional body and her physical body both were working together they're not separate they're they're interwoven and there came a point where her ethereal or her emotional body and her physical body just could not take anymore and it broke so yes her death certificate says 1a myocardial infarction I understand what that means as a scientist but I also understand what that means as my grandmother's grandson yeah and she died of a broken heart I think that's so important what you're saying is, and I think you're obviously, it's really interesting that you have both sides of that because I think a lot of people don't or aren't willing to look at it too closely because it's so true. What medicine has done is amazing, you know, amazing. Mm. Mm. And no one's, we're not saying like, hey, go back to biting on bits of wood instead of having anaesthetic. But but it is like you said, she died of, you know, the technical term that you use. And as yeah. as someone who loved her, you know, there was some, there was another story and like both those yeah. narratives exist together. And I think what's happened slightly is there was perhaps a more emotional narrative that like you said, with medicalization pushed, got pushed out. And now we have yes. this very medicalized narrative. And really yes. it's what, 
one doesn't replace the other they both need to exist together um, exactly. and I yeah I find exactly. that really interesting and I think sometimes it can it can panic people of like oh well if I think the wrong thing can I am I going to start dying you're like it's not that simple it's not no <laughs> it's no, not that simple no. exactly I mean it took my grandmother from 2005 when yeah. my father died at 54 years old to 2021 for her to actually die of, mm. of that emotional tumult that was happening within her but it's also such an essential part of her narrative yeah. you know she, she she had that pain and of course I've always considered that the price of love mm. is the pain of loss it's always pain the price of love we always pay with pain at the end and that that pain comes from loss and and yet for me to be able to emotionally relocate my grandmother as as an ancestor now I need to embrace that narrative, that narrative that it wasn't just a myocardial infarction, that she's more than the sum totality of her physiology. She was yeah. a person. And that grief that she suffered for all those years, 16 years of grief, took its toll on her. Mm. And while she, she had reconciled with it to an extent, because obviously she could, she could function, she lived alone, she did everything other than Hoover. And, <laughs> and yet she carried this this pain and I and I always and in my head I I think of that moment where she died and and all I can see is that finally her heart just exploded into into just a red mist and and sh and she left and and I'm so sad that I've lost my grandmother but I had her for 50 years yeah, and yeah. I can still hear all of her one-liners she was such an amazing individual and I'll miss her terribly but I'm also so relieved and I feel so blessed that we now have that component of her death as part of her narrative as part of her story and and ultimately what is remembered lives and but for something to be remembered it needs a story it needs a narrative not just uh, you know oh she had a heart attack oh, you know <laughs> she just went in and she had a heart attack and then she was dead and it's like no there was so much more because it was my nine yeah. and and sometimes I think we for, we forget or but maybe perhaps as well that the the um not the problem with the medicalization of death is but the issue the issue within it is the, the world of medicine isn't equipped to deal with existentialism. Yeah, it's yeah. not equipped to deal with the big questions. And one can't die or be dying without those elements coming mm. into it. And of course, the the world of medicine has been alarmingly unprepared for the fact that that's still a thing. Even in our scientifically advanced age, it's still a thing. We still cling on to stories and storylines and narratives and existentialistic issues. And yeah, all I, of that comes into it. I think what you're saying is so interesting because I'm obsessed with narratives and I'm obsessed with how much it helps you grieve if you can mm. have a narrative. I think what something you just said there really struck me when you were like the privilege of having the final piece of her story. I think that's a really lovely way to look at it. And of course, like you said, you can look at it that way because she did have a good death and she was, there was lots of things that might be more difficult for someone else to, to look at it sort of that positively. But I think it's a really nice way to think of it, like of like, yeah, I get to know what the, the end for them was. And that's that can help me understand who they were and who I was yes. to them. And yeah, those those stories and the story of who they were and who they were to you are so important. And that was actually yeah. saying, I haven't really gone into this before, but like with my grandpa, it was very painful for a lot of people was that my grandpa just was done and it didn't matter right. who else was here. You know, and that I think that was quite hard for a lot of us of like, 
okay, my dad has died. This is awful. It's very young, very sudden. Yeah. We're still here. And you could see in his face, it was like, yeah, doesn't matter. Like he was not willing to, cl- like the way you're describing your, your nine, I can really un- relate, understand that like, I am in agony, but I'm going to carry on because I have to, because of this, because of this. But yeah, he yes, was just like, yes. it was like he literally he checked, he checked out. It was like, it doesn't, like, there's nothing left. Which can yes. be very hard for people who are left going, oh, am I not worth sticking Exactly, sticking exactly. It's that sense of what is valuable yeah. or, or the value that somebody puts on something. Because of course, my nine had other children as yeah. well, and a load of grandchildren. But Alan, my dad... It just broke her. And yeah. that's, that's the only thing I can really say about it. It what did, broke um, her. What happened to your dad? So my father, um, that was, again, rather a horrendous story. When he was young, so, so there's, a, there's a whole series of genetic uh, stomach ulcers, gastric ulcers, within the male section of my family. My father had really bad gastric ulcers in his early 20s, and they did a duodenal bypass, which they don't do anymore because they know that there's a high the high possibility of you developing stomach cancer from that particular surgery. And that's exactly what happened to him. So the surgery kind of saved his life at the beginning. Now the males just take a poton pump inhibitor medication daily and and we're fine. But he he was just one of the unfortunate ones at the beginning, you know, in the 70s Mm. when they didn't really know what was going on. So... So at 54 years old, he'd developed um, uh, stomach cancer that went also into his pancreas and mm. um, through into his gut. And, and that was it. And, and now, I, alarmingly, I'm, you know how I, I always consider my father to be an age that I will never yeah, attain, that yeah. I'll never get to. But I'm four years being off the age he was when he died. Yeah. And nine just never got over it Mm. you know she just didn't get over it and for her to have died on his birthday yeah and and the beautiful thing is and of course these are all so subjective and it could just be the illusions of a dying mind but she knew that she was dying she was a little bit incoherent and then suddenly she was coherent she was very lucid and she said i'm going to die and the question was asked, well, how, what makes you think that? And she said, Alan, standing in the corner of the room. She said, I'm going to die. And this peace came over her. So whatever she saw, whatever, whether it was something that we can ever understand or articulate or give an explanation to, or whether it was just something happening inside the brain of a dying individual, whatever it was brought her this immense comfort and peace and allowed her somehow to to succumb, to surrender to what was happening in her body. And and she turned her face from this world and, and it was beautiful. It was just beautiful. So, and and that was a part, an inherent aspect of her funeral service as well, which I conducted. I was the celebrant for, for my nine's funeral. But she'd, um, she'd used a dictaphone for the last few years of her life, a small digital dictaphone, and she'd dictated her entire life story into this wow. dictaphone. And I played some of that at the funeral to have her voice yeah. present, you know. It was just beautiful. And so now as a writer, I'm going to write her life story up as a novel, probably only for the family members. But because I, I find that you know, writing is cathartic. I lost my sister. She was 22 when she died of SUDEP or sudden unexpected death in epilepsy in 2009. She'd had a baby eight months previously and they think that the, the lactation hormones and the mother hormones had kicked, started the idiopathic epilepsy again and and she died of a, of a super grand mal epileptic fit. And, and I wrote a book 
to work through that pain. That's, that's, that was the only way I could work my way through the pain because it felt so unfair that I've given my life to death. Like my whole life I've given to death in service to the Reaper. And I'm like, how how dare you? How, how dare you take my little sister? Mm. And I was like, what is wrong with you? It's like, you've taken my sister and I've given you everything. And it, and I don't even know to who I was addressing that, you know, the yeah, reaper. Yeah, I know. <coughs> I felt I know so mean. unfair. There's a something um, like, no. I wonder if you have this, I have this, when you are someone who talks about death and is all happy with it, and then there's a death that sort of kicks the floor from under you, you think, no, 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 no. Mm. The reason I do this is because I'm in control of it. The reason, yes. I, the reason I talk about death so much is because I will <laughs> always be prepared. And then, yeah, the, like I did an episode about my friend um, Kimberly St. John, who was Welsh as well, amazing, amazing palliative mm. care nurse who passed away last year. And and I I found it so difficult to resolve, like you said, with, with life, with the Reaper, with the universe, mm. with God, whatever you want to sc- yeah. screen to, that they had done that. I found it so... Yeah just like no look i'm willing to deal with a lot of pain and trauma but that is unreasonable <laughs> like that's un- yes, that's not exactly. okay and in fact no. she said she just had a baby eight months previously like that is just heartbreaking what was her name that's so her name was rachel, rachel. and she was the youngest of four oh. and she has a little boy well he's not so little now yeah. his name's harvey he's doing ever so well he lives in colchester with his dad but it was I, I I think some somewhere within me, I had this expectation that I would have brownie points. Mm, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. Whatever mystery breathes wonder and magic into the universe, that I had brownie points with it, and it turned out the rug was just pulled straight out from under my feet. And yeah. and even to this day, whenever there are times where I'll close the fridge door and there's a photograph of the four kids, you know, the four of us together. And there are just times where, you know, when when you feel that all of that emotion, all of that pain is tethered down, it's anchored down somehow. And then years later, it just takes a glimpse or a memory or a smell or a song to to untether mm. those ropes that hold everything down. And they and you can hear them ping yeah. and, and the pain comes back. And and but now I've learned to embrace that pain. And when that pain comes. I allow it to overwhelm me. I allow it to to cause me to cry, and because I hear so so often in in my daily work, in my work as a celebrant, the words that I hear so often is, "I don't think I will cope. Mm. I don't think I can cope." And that's whether somebody has to do something that's a part of the obligation of, of death procedures, or whether I ask somebody, you know, do you want to come up and say something whilst I'm leading the funeral service? I don't think I can cope. I'm not sure I can cope. And my answer to that has, is always, then don't. Mm. Don't cope. Like, stop coping. Yeah. And, and do you know what happens when you stop coping? you cope <laughs> it's the bizarrest thing so yeah. i would try and hold on to this anguish and this pain of losing rachel because i didn't want to lose my ability to cope and then i realized yeah. that the beauty of it all was the not coping mm. and now it's okay if i want to cry because rachel's no longer here i cry and but the crying is a beautiful thing because it's indicative of the depth of love 
But of course, it's it's so hard when I then have to deal with the loss of other people. Mm. I don't go back to an office job. And I remember that the mortuary I was working in at the time, about a month after Rachel had died, I put a, a, an elderly lady out to be viewed in the Chapel of Rest. And another elderly lady turned up to, to see her. And of course, I'm not entirely sure what the relationship is. And she stood by the body of this tiny, tiny little old lady. And she held her hand and I'm standing next to her. And she looked up at me. Tears were running down her face. And she said, she's my baby sister. Oh. What am I going to do? Oh, my God. Oh, Kariad. <gasps> Oh, I, I nearly lost it. I'm not surprised. <laughs> like, I'm losing I'm it like, now. Like I'm like, what on earth am I going to do? How uh, am I going to? How am I going to do? And you know, I and it, and I thought this is so unprofessional. I could feel the tears coming into yeah. my eyes, and I'm like, you can't do this. You're a professional. You can't do this. And bless her, she reached out and she held me and she went, "You've lost your little sister as well, haven't uh, you?" And we both just stood there, a professional, <laughs> a bereaved little tiny little old lady. She was so small. Um, embracing each other and crying because we'd both lost our baby sisters. It was the most one of the most beautiful moments of my life. I had no idea who this woman was, <laughs> but we needed one another somehow at that point oh, in time. You know? You've got it was me, Christopher. I'm, I'm absolutely <laughs> pouring. And do you know what? Like when I do this show, I'm always like, "Don't you cry? You're not the lead. Don't you cry?" But that is just. Oh, it was so it was so hard as well. And, because also, and yet, what's getting me yeah. is like you've what we talk about so much on the show is like we're all in the club, and when you find mm. someone in the club when you really need them, it's like it it almost makes everything okay. But when you find someone yeah. in the club uh, who's not only in the club is in your room, <laughs> in your yeah. niche room, like <laughs> so, when I've met someone who's like lost a dad as a teenager uh, from yeah. pancreatic cancer, like both of us are like Ugh, because it's just like your your whole. You know, you don't have, like, words don't exist. You don't need to. They just know, they just look at you and you both go, exactly. I know exactly how you're feeling right now. And exactly. and even if you don't, that something makes you believe they do. And and I just, I think what you're saying is so beautiful because, I mean, I felt like that for years. I was like, don't open the box. Just do not open the box. Right. Because my belief was the box will kill you. Like, yes. I honestly thought I'll start crying and I won't stop and I will die of tears mm. like some Victorian yes. child. Yes. I will just, yes. like, the yes. room will fill up. Like Alice in Wonderland, and oh, I'll die. Gosh. And I and I was so afraid of opening that box. And it took me therapy. It took me a long time to get to therapy, and then therapy to kind of like, literally like, open the box, get one thing out, close it every week, right. get one thing out, close it again, close it again. <laughs> and eventually, everything was out of the box. And so I did it sort of in you know really gentle stages. And then I realised, oh, I see. You won't cry forever. You know, yeah, exactly. it, it overwhelms you and you don't cope and then suddenly you're all right. But it's it's such yeah. a frightening thing to do. So for you to, I think that's so brave, so brave. And so it's very, um, what I mean by brave is like, it's very hard to be really human because it's very easy not to be. Mm. It's very easy to be sort of robotic and turn things off and it look is. away and shut it down. Don't think about it. Tether it up. Tie the ropes tighter. Exactly. Tie them down. Yeah, yeah. Don't Keep think about it. Down. But for you, like to say to when you think about Rachel and just allow that pain <clears> and the tears to be there and, and for them to be beautiful, it mm. takes a lot of, um, yeah, strength and courage to to do that, to not, to, to look it properly in the face, which I think is what, it, when people say they can't cope, I think they're just like, I can't, I'm not ready to look that in the face is kind of what they Exactly. Mean, it's, it? it's, it's an anxiety of something that hasn't, that they can't quite articulate. They're not quite mm. sure what's going to happen when they do open those boxes. Yeah. But invariably when people do, it's immensely cathartic mm. to be able to look at what is in that box 
and not be well to, to be overwhelmed for it by a, for a period of time but the overwhelm soon turns back into the reason why you're suffering which is love mm. that's that's at, at the very heart of all of this is love so it doesn't matter how much you struggle to unpack what you're unpacking exists because of love and that is the most beautiful thing in the universe is just love We're all struggling with something, even if it doesn't look like it from the outside. That's why I want to tell you about New Day, a new podcast with a simple goal, helping you get through today and look forward to tomorrow. Maybe you're successful but miserable at work, or perhaps you have the perfect family on Insta but you're really at each other's throats. Maybe you can't even put your finger on what feels weird. Whatever it is, New Day can help. Every week, author, therapist and grief expert Claire Bidwell-Smith shares one new way to make life and your day a little better. From waking up with more energy to redefining balance and making time for hobbies again, Claire and her guests are here to help you answer the big question, how can I lead a more fulfilling life? Listen to New Day from Lemonada Media wherever you get your podcasts. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Griefcast. With Carrie Ad Lloyd. I'm also a druid, you know, a fully paid member of the lunatic fringe <laughs> of, over on that side of the world. And when we get to the end of October, to what people would call Halloween, it's, it's one of the biggest festivals in the druid tradition. And it's all about the dead. All of it is about honouring the dead and remembering the dead and singing their songs and telling their stories and all of this. So for three days over that period, which in Welsh we call Kalangeyav, which means the Calence of winter, we remember our ancestors, we tend to their graves, we wash their graves, we clean them and cut the grass, and lay lovely flowers, bake them bread and cakes and biscuits. And we talk about them and we have meals where we talk about our ancestors. And what strikes me with it all is society at a large, it doesn't, it's almost afraid of us expressing all of that stuff. Mm. It doesn't want us to cry. It doesn't want us to be unhinged by our own bereavement and grief. It wants us to be productive and efficient and carry on, keep on keeping on. And for those three days at the end of summer, I really look forward to the fact that we don't have to apologise. Mm. We just 
embrace what we have lost and hold it and celebrate it for three whole days and none of us end up in a you know in an asylum none of us end up unhinged we come out of it with this breath of of love it's just love and that's all that's left and rachel's gone my dad is gone my nine is gone all i have is my love for them Mm. and which means that the most important thing about the relationships i had with those people still hasn't gone away it will never go away. The only thing that's gone away is their physical presence. And yet the very reason I loved them wasn't because of their physical presence. It was because of their stories. It was their narratives. It was their expressiveness. And I have so much of, I mean, I've got so much of my nine in me, you know, apart from me being six foot three and her being four foot nine. <laughs> um, I've got so much, such this tiny piece of person that's filled me so much. And I feel so full because of her. And God, that has to be something to celebrate. Yeah. I think what's really interesting to me is what you're talking about as well is being allowed a space for those rituals. And like you said, being around other Mm. people that don't go, you're doing what? You're doing what? For three days? Exactly. Bloody hell. All right. Okay. Um, (laughs) As my Cockney side of the family appears. Um, Yeah. And I think, and that's definitely why... I mean, I've talked about this before, but that's why I started the show because I wanted a space Mm. to be able to talk about death and my dad and my grief, really, not even him, my grief, where people wouldn't go, ooh, anyway, uh, (laughs) oh, she's talking about it. Okay, change the subject. And just have a space where it was fine. And that's what I can really relate to in those three days. It must be so nice to just go, yeah, you know, we're just going to talk about my friend, one of my um, oldest, bestest friends from school moved to Mexico. And she... Uh. Yeah, and she really, uh, like, fully goes in for Day of the Dead now, and she loves it. And when she was talking to me about it, I saw I had, like, what I'm having when you were talking about your ceremony, like, that jealousy of, like, wow, like, a culture that allows that much is really... That's amazing. Yeah, like, allows you to just remember people, really. And, like, Mm. this is, you know, Christmas, about presents. This day, it's about everyone who's dead. Like, Easter, bunnies and chocolate, guys. That's how I (laughs) I count Easter. Sorry. Sorry, Christians. And Um, and it's the same period. It's exactly the same period. Dia de los Muertos, 1st of November. Calangay of Halloween. It's all about the dead. It's all about the dead. And we've forgotten that. We've secularised it and turned it into trick-or-treats and sweets, whereas it was profound. You only have to look in our history books to see that that time at the end of the year was all about the dead. Mm. And in Wales, we have all these amazing traditions. And one is called Hell Boyd Kenadameiro, or Food (laughs) for the Assembly of the Messenger of the Dead. I love it. Where, I love it so much. That's why I love Welsh so much. It's like you know where you bake you bake these little cakes called solod, and in England they're called soul cakes. A tradition that oh, still yeah, happens in yeah. Somerset and places, you know. And um, and they're given as offerings to the dead, and and people think, oh, it sounds a bit morbid, but actually it's anything but morbid. It's all about celebrating our. But our I don't think that's so interesting because you know, cakes, sweetness, something that, and I am a big believer in like. The power of sugar, <laughs> the power of sweetness, <laughs> sugar, honey, whatever it is to, to kind of remind you of things that aren't bitter mm. and sad. And exactly, and now, yeah. like you said, yeah. we turn that into trick or treating and sweets. And but but still, there's still something in that human brain going sweets at this time of year, like to remind yes. ourselves because before we go into this like hellish winter of like nothing, you know, there's no flowers, there's no leaves, and everything's dark. And especially in this yes. countries yes. that we live in that are cold and wet. <laughs> 
especially yes. in Wales, um, <laughs> yeah. to remind yourself, like you said, that there will be spring, there will be life, that, like all of this very fundamental stuff that I think, I think people do want to think about, but it's quite maybe it's just too much sometimes. And I feel like unless you're in the club yeah. or you've experienced yeah. it and you know, like, oh, I, I, I want that. I want a place to put that. Mm. People sort of are afraid. Like you said, it becomes fe- fearful. Um, it does. Because it's, yeah. it's scary rather than rather than a celebration. They died and therefore exactly. we remember them. And that's exactly. what I found talking to her about um, Dia, Dia Estas Muerto. Um, I was like, wow, they're really, there's a joy in remembering them. And I was like, yes. and she's lost her dad as well. And, you know, she now like does a little ceremony and and has, treat you know, she's as, as if she was um, Mexican and has mm. the photos and stuff. And I was just like, wow, what a great way to just incorporate it into your life mm. and then the people who didn't know yeah. them can be like oh there they are i've seen them exactly. and i understand and it and yes and the narrative continues yeah. you know so so we we even put on stuff for just the ordinary secular community here and we, we call it a morning tea m-o-u rather than you know uh, yeah i see yeah yeah and so people come in their finest funeral attire. They have a gorgeous afternoon tea, and they bring pictures of their of their dead, and it gets put into a big book of the dead. And then we call out the names of the oh, dead, and God. people just talk about their dead in fantastic Victorian funeral attire or whatever they whatever they've got in the back of their closets, and people love it. And and I, and I think what is essentially beautiful about that particular event is not only its simplicity, but also the fact that it creates a safe space. Mm. It's a, a really safe space where if people feel upset, they feel moved, they can express it without judgment. But that also, they're, they're in a space that channels of dialogue are opened. Mm. So when they go back, and so many of these people have, have come back and reported to us that they went home and they told people, this is what I want when I die. This is what I want to happen. These are my wishes. Here's an envelope. And it's created that, open those channels of dialogue so I do it with myself I, I revisit my my will and my last wishes I revisit my you know the directive for my end of life care if that ever happens mm. so I revisit all of that during this period which feels safe yeah. it feels natural at the end of of summer when you know and I and I've often thought that grief itself has has a season it has seasons yes definitely you know? definitely absolutely and, and it's all, it was like the last leaf falls in autumn and then you're faced with this barrenness of winter and this this maelstrom of emotions of not knowing whether you're even going to survive this. Mm. But then the flowers do come and the blossoms eventually do pollinate into fruit. And, and, and yes, we move on, but that's not to imply that we're not inexorably transformed by the process of of having lost someone yeah and i read i can't remember where i read it someone asked me the other day and i don't remember but i read years ago that you have to go through each season without them so often we'll say like oh the first year's hard but i think what we mean is each season is hard because you have to see the flowers without them have the hot the summer have the autumn leaves and then the winter and then your brain goes fuck they're gone like because each thing they didn't see is like another marker Mm. for your brain isn't it and and yes. I, I found that really helpful when I read that. So I was like, yes, that's... Sometimes we can, again, I guess we've, you know, we just put a date. We, oh, it's a year. It's 365 days. And that first year yeah. is hard. You think, why? And you're like, no, because it's living through all those things that your brain is telling you time is passing. Exactly. That's what's hard. That they, they didn't yeah. see that. They didn't see that. They didn't see that. 
yeah. you know the, it's all that it's all that connection yeah. it's all about relationships and the, and the sacredness of of those relationships and the, the the narrative of the human condition it's not a, just a body that's died yeah. it's it's a person it's an individual that's i think that secular tea sounds amazing your more morning tea the morning tea and like what a yeah. and again yeah, this idea that i think so much with death and grief is the loss of community you know that's really mm. why a podcast like this is popular because people maybe don't have a church they can go to or a graveyard exactly, they can go exactly. to yes. and like you said to to take those kind of i guess Ju- druidic, druidian thoughts and then pass druidic, druidic thank druidic. you druidic yeah, yeah. those druidic thoughts yeah. and then pass them on in a secular way to be like hey we're just going to call out their names it's nothing funny guys yeah. nothing weird we're just going to shout their yeah. names and you have a cup yeah. of tea <laughs> and yeah, it's like and some scones yeah yeah and it's like <laughs> grief light you know like so people can be like oh okay great i can do that i can dip my toe into that world without feeling like i'm going to be exactly. overwhelmed by it or it's fearful or it's something strange because yeah and that's why we always say on the show like I always ask the names because it's like getting to say someone's name out loud you don't get to do it after a funeral you know people don't ask you you just say my dad died my sister died and people go oh okay I'm so sorry anyway and just being able to say you know like even who they were yeah even now like you just saying Rachel again and again you just feel her more Mm. her presence more as her name is said and exactly you know it's hard I think it's hard for people because it seems silly. There's sometimes it seems a bit silly or why should it matter? But it's like you said, because they were a person, they weren't a body. Exactly. When you... Why it's so important. Yeah, you know. exactly. Because I think sometimes when we say, oh, they died, oh, my my X, Y, Z died. Yeah. It's like, then people go, oh, well, how did they die of this thing? Oh, okay. And it, yeah, yeah, rather than who were they? Yeah, who were they? Who were yes, they? Which exactly. is sometimes really... And, you know, I get it. You're in a pub. It's a quick conversation. You don't want to, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, but we, we took the those concepts. The death cafe movement is so popular. Yeah. The, the death salon movement run by Caitlin Doughty over in California. She does amazing stuff all over the world. And um, and I've been lucky to, re- to be a part of death cafes and death salons. But we wanted to incorporate something that was that was different. Mm. So that's why we created this morning tea. So, so there's also an element of quirkiness and also an element of fun in it as well. Yeah. But that it was centered around those those um the the deceased about the people that we'd lost and what their names were and what their stories were, but also it highlights as well this hierarchy of bereavement and grief you know that's usually it's children at the very mm. top and then parents and siblings and right at the very bottom of this pyramid is usually our pets and yet we see so many people who are in such sufferings of grief and loss because they've lost their little cat mm. or their little dog. And and that's still as valid because it's still indicative of the sacredness of relationship. And we've created this event where people can come and be moved and be tearful or be joyous because they either lost a child or a grandparent or a little pussycat. And that the hierarchy doesn't exist. It's still loss. Yeah. Call out their names and tell us what they were like so that we can share in the love that you had for them. And, and and then everybody else falls in love with within that moment with something that we all share, a commonality that we all have, which is the pain of loss. God, yeah. And I mean, I was just thinking, it must be a nice moment when you get to talk about a dog or a cat as well after, like, just because it's nice to remember. Like, it's just like, oh, I, I you know, I've had, I've had guests talk about pets as well. And I, I yeah, I like... 
Mm. I have no problem. Loss is loss. Like I use, and I've talked about this as well. I used to, when I hadn't dealt with my grief, I'd be like, oh my God, fuck you. Oh, your cat is dead. Oh, how sad. Because, you know, I had all this pain that I hadn't dealt with. And I think that's often when the hierarchy gets thrown at people. It's when that person is in a lot of pain that they haven't processed. I think once you acknowledge your pain and your grief, I felt much more open-hearted about everyone's pain because I didn't have to like keep mine preserved. It wasn't in the box, especially waiting for whenever I was ready. It was like, my pain's out. It's awful. That yours pain is also awful. This is very painful. That's okay. That's okay. We're all in this together. Exactly. But that has to be worked through. And I'm I'm convinced through the, the 30 years that I've been a death service professional that in order for us to be able to assimilate the message of bereavement and grief, we must listen to it. Yeah. We have to give it a year. And an ear, that's a difficult word for a Welshman yeah. to say, <laughs> differentiate between an annual and this appendage on the side of my head. But um, um but it's that we have to give it a voice and, yeah. and allow it to to speak so that so that we can reconcile ourselves with it and allow grief to settle and find a home within us. But that takes time. Yeah, it does. It did did you have therapy or did you, have you not gone down that road because of your other roads, so to speak? So we have <clears throat> frequent therapies anyway mm. as part of my profession because oh, wow. we obviously have to deal with so much yeah. pain on a daily basis and that eventually seeps into you by some form of emotional osmosis yeah. so we do have to be able to deal with that so we always have the option of being able to see a therapist and and I think it's a really good idea to do that because you can't carry all of that pain yeah. and and whilst yes there's a professional veneer there is a distance it doesn't matter you yeah. can't be subjected to horror and pain and suffering and grief every day of your life and it not affect you yeah. it has to affect you somehow so I've I've worked through that and also you know gone through you know, being educated as somebody who understands human bereavement and and grief as well within my profession um, that doesn't necessarily help when you're in suffering yeah, yourself yeah. <clears throat> it does help to have an outside perspective to just help you find those tethers that were so indicative of that love and and do something with them and tie them down in a way that doesn't dismiss the emotion that doesn't denigrate what's going on but embraces it as a part of the human condition and um, so it, so it is an essential component of of my professionalism but also of my own um, emotional and spiritual well-being as mm. well to 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 talk and to have open channels of dialogue So whether that's done with a therapist or whether it's done with a bunch of other lovely druids, you know, every time we get to Halloween, um, it's kind of the same thing. It does the same thing. It's all therapy in a jar. Yeah, it's true. I'm a big advocate of like, you know, whoever you need to speak to, speak to them. (laughs) Like it doesn't have to be a professional. I found it really helpful to when I did speak to a professional because I felt like, I wasn't really being honest when I was talking to other people. I was very good at performing and putting on this, the, oh, the yes. grief I want mm. you to see and the narrative yes. I want you to have is like, oh, I'm yes. fine. Isn't it amazing? This thing happened to me, but literally not bothered by it. Um, and then when yeah. I finally got to therapy and I was able to be like, oh, yeah, I'm not, I'm basically not okay. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I found that really helpful. But I think, yeah, that's also someone you know, I don't really have a faith as such. And I was brought mm. up a little bit with like Church of England, but nothing, no rituals kind of thing. And I think, yeah. yeah, if you have a faith or a spirituality that can often give you that place to, to put that emotion. How was it doing your nines um, 
funeral. It was... Um, people will often ask me, how on earth do you do that? It's one yeah. thing to, to be a funeral celebrant for somebody who you didn't really know and you've just sat down with that family and created a bespoke service. But how on earth do you deal with somebody that you've loved? And But to me, it's... It is the most honourable thing that I can do mm. for them and in their memory because nobody, well, you know, obviously other people in the family knew my nine, but I she was, I knew everything about her and it needed to be me. She wasn't religious. She believed that there was something, but she wasn't really able to articulate that. And when it came to, you know, myself being a druid, she used to tell her friend Annie May, who also died the same day as her, wow. which was peculiar, she would say, what is your grandson? And he's a druid. And she went, oh, she said, they bring the sun back so we don't have to worry about it. And that was the extent <laughs> of her understanding, you know, of paganism. And um, But I held all of that. So I needed to express that as part of her of her funeral. But I did my little sister Rachel's funeral as well. Wow. And Gosh. that was, um, it's the first time ever in my life that I've had uh, what is called an autoscopic hallucination. And in the, I was standing at the, the front of the crematorium, which had a really, really high, has a really high ceiling. And right at the end, I'd sent the coffin down and I could feel everything inside me break. I could literally hear things snapping inside of me. And I didn't have any more words to say. I'd somehow got through the words, but I, I was having a breakdown. And then suddenly I looked up into the corners of the ceilings and there were clouds up there with lightning in them. And I thought, oh, shit, this isn't good. Oh, this oh, isn't good. Oh, no, that shouldn't like, be what there. the bloody hell is going on? And then everything went black. Everything went black. And wow. I didn't collapse. I, I didn't fall, nothing. I still stood there and everyone said, you just stood there and your eyes were fixed on the ceiling. And they kind of led me out, sat me in the garden. And, and I used to smoke then. I haven't smoked since Rachel died in 2009. Somebody stuck a fag in my gob. And I, and I came to and I knew exactly what had happened. And it's called an autoscopic hallucination where your brain literally is aware that there's all of this emotional turbulence happening and it has to distract you to switch everything off and reset. Wow. So it will distract you and it will usually distract you to the periphery of your vision. And they're called autoscopic hallucinations or a hallucination that's created intrinsically within you to distract you. And literally and clouds full of thunder and lightning. Full of thunder and like, lightning, That yeah. couldn't and be more metaphorical. Oh it was my just God. bizarre. And, that, and my last conscious thought was, oh, shit, this isn't good. And then it just went, everything just went, I don't remember anything then for the next, like, three or four minutes. And um, But I recognised it immediately as immense trauma, yeah. immense emotional trauma. And my brain was like, girl, <laughs> you, you gotta, you've got to shut this shit down now. Go Computer outside and have a cigarette. on standby, <laughs> yes. out to lunch, out of office on. This person is not... <laughs> ready to deal with any other questions yes. okay and then i think i cried wow. until i just cried and cried and cried and it just felt like i was never going to stop mm. the pain was so awful but she was my baby sister it had to be me who did it it couldn't have been anyone else i didn't want you know it couldn't have been a minister she wasn't religious at all and it had to be me 
and I had to absorb that pain somehow. My brain thought I was crazy. Yeah. That's a lot of pressure, <laughs> but, Christopher, yeah. on yourself. Like I under, I totally get where you're yes. coming from. It had to be mm. me, but my God, like that is a lot to take on. For your, like you said, your baby sister, all that. And how old were you it then? Was a lot. So I, so that was eleven years ago. So I would have been. So I'm fifty this year. So I was thirty-nine. It's <sighs> so. a lot. And um, and yet, I'm filled with. Um, I'm filled with, it's not joy. I don't even know what the, even, even the word is. I'm so glad that I did it. Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad I did it because I felt as if I did it justice, mm. you know, and did it right. And because it's so important, you know, that's that ritual is so important where we say goodbye to her and we send her into the fire. And, and um, and I needed to do it for myself, for my own grief somehow. Yeah, yeah. You know? No, I. But it was right on the edge, though. You know, yeah. and it was on the edge of total breakdown. Mm. And how I came back from that, I'm not entirely sure. But I, I did. I came back. But I understood what had happened. But I think that just came from you know what I do for a living and and all of this other stuff that's in my life that enables me to to immediately assess it and then talk about it and not keep it down. Yeah, and it sounds like you, yeah. you've you gone down that road, which I can relate to as well, of like really making sure you understand like the science behind why my body did that and that and that's mm. helping your grief as well of being like, yeah, exactly. I, it wasn't like I wasn't, I'm not crazy. You know, I didn't have yeah. a, a vision. Like my body did a thing to protect me because of this. And I think exactly. that can be quite exactly. helpful when you when you feel so out of control and that's the thing grief is such a is such an out of control feeling because it is like you said just mm. um, almost an emotion without words it's just so much or it's so much it's so much pain it's so much that's tears okay. it's it's just the loudest anything has ever been and so to yes. be able to place it of like oh it was this at this point and it was this is it can yeah. be like you said just to sort of tether yourself back down and it's yes. funny isn't it because yes. we're, what we're talking about is that tension that I think exists with grief of like you do need to tether yourself back down so that you can carry mm-hmm. on living but then you need Very to like so. you do it so much that you need to go okay now we need to let go some ropes not exactly. too many <laughs> not too many yes. but now yes. but they're there for a reason and I think a lot of that kind of you know pick yourself up dust yourself down come on you can get through this that kind of attitude it's actually really helpful mm. for like immediate trauma I think it does mean like you yes. just you do it allows you to like brush your teeth the next day because if you exactly. if you took on exactly. what was happening you, you would just stay in bed and never get up but it's like yes. then continuing that you know like 10 12 years later you're like oh i'm still on autopilot and you you have yeah. to kind of uh, have a word with your brain don't you go i think i might be ready now but your brain is like no yes. we saw you <laughs> you're yes, not exactly you're like, yeah you saw me 10 exactly. years ago yeah yeah but we 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 logged it and we don't think you are <laughs> yes. so we've yeah. locked the box I'm, and we're not telling you where the key is exactly <laughs> and, like, and that's the thing you know emotional relocation doesn't happen overnight yeah it yeah t- it can take a lot it takes as long as it takes yeah. for that for that to actually happen but it's just it's so peculiar i can't even articulate how peculiar it is to to have grief as a constant mm. in my life, whether it's my own or whether it's the grief of other people. Because in order to be able to help those other people come to uh, acute terms with their grief, because when I see people, it's very, it's a very acute environment, you have to be able to empathise and you do need to be able to reach down into your own humanity and, and experience of grief to be able to help those people who have just found out that this individual has died, sometimes in the most dreadful of ways. 
But that pain is so essential to who we are as human beings. It's mm. so essential. And it doesn't ever go away. It just transforms itself. It just becomes an essential part of you. And and there is a beauty in that. That's not necessarily apparent when you're in the throes of acute yeah. grief. But, but then when you become bereaved, which to me is always um, the longer version of grief. Mm. I'm not sure if that's true etymologically speaking. But, but to me, grief is something that is very acute. And bereavement is something that you suffer in the long term, you know. And that ultimately, I just keep coming back to that same word. And in 30 years, I keep coming back to the same word. And it's just all because of love. Mm. Sounds really wishy-washy. And it sounds <laughs> as if I'm, you know, I need to be like, you know, wearing dreadlocks or being homespun <laughs> in wool or something or be out <clears throat> channeling angels with organically charged crystal vegetables. But, you know, but it's, it is all about love. Mm. I know. I think it's hard as well, like my parents were quite hippie. So like, I don't, I don't <laughs> mind that that sentiment yeah. <laughs> but I know sometimes and it's interesting to me actually because I, I really I really hate grief is love because I, I find I, but the way you're selling it to me you're the first person to make me go <laughs> oh shit he's right like because I've always found I hate it when it's a meme I hate it when it's like a picture of a beach mm. and some footprints oh, and it goes grief is love because I think oh fuck off it doesn't yeah. it doesn't sum up how complicated grief is but I think the way you're describing which I'm really loving is that once, yeah, like what it all comes down to is this deep connection and relationship you have mm. with that. And what I think is important, what that acknowledges is if that connection or relationship is broken or damaged or has trauma involved in it, then yeah, the love will reflect that. It will be complicated. Exactly. It won't be. Yes. I think sometimes yes. when we say it comes down to love, people think, oh, right, everything's just brilliant. It's like, no, that's not what I mean. Exactly. <laughs> I don't mean everything's brilliant. I just no. mean that. And you can't put it in a meme. When yeah. you put it in a meme, it just seems so lame. It's, yeah. it's something that is, I mean, it's very difficult even to express all of that in, in an hour-long podcast, yeah, yeah. you know, which, but it's something that needs to be unpacked as to, you know, well, why is this happening? What is at the bottom of it? And it isn't something as simple as that you can just throw out in three words on a meme. It's so deeply, mm. deeply, profoundly complicated. But so is love. You know, yeah. people often people often even get that wrong by thinking, oh, the opposite of love is hate. No, no, not at all. The opposite of love is indifference. Mm. You know, and and when we're in grief, we're not indifferent. Yeah, yeah, that's... You know, at all. <clears throat> that's a very... That's a really good way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. Like, it, it's, yeah, it's... Yeah, it, it's a sort of fundamental human connection thing. And I think to acknowledge it, you have to acknowledge that you're human and you need other humans mm. in your life. And that because we're kind of like, that's who we are as animals. Like we need to yes. be part of a community and a group. And you have to kind of remove your individual status, I guess, and yes, be like, yes. yeah, I'm not my job or my title or my hair colour exactly. or like what I like listening to. I am actually a part of this you know, the human race. <laughs> now I've gone really yes. wishy-washy. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's there. good. I've gone for I there. like a bit of wishy-washy every now and again. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. We're, we're clean. At least we're clean. Um, Christopher, I could talk to you for fucking hours. Thank you so uh, much. It was such a you're joy. You're not saying we've been talking for an hour already, have we? we? Have. Oh my God, we I have. have. I'm afraid. <laughs> oh, that's impossible. How? <laughs> It was so lovely to talk to you. It was so, so lovely. Oh, thank you. And I want... It's been an absolute joy. I'm a big fan of this podcast anyway. So to be on it, woo! <laughs> well, I feel like you've been working your life towards being a guest. It's like you, you've done it all. But thank you for talking oh. to me about um, 
you're, I want to say that you're nine. That's right, isn't it? You're nine, nine Margaret. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mm. And Alan, your dad, and Rachel, your baby sister as well, because it's just yeah. been a real honour to hear them and hear your thank eloquent you. words. What about is them. remembered lives. Yeah. Oh, yeah. thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Some years ago, I started to write a story about myself when I was a little girl and things that happened to me. But as the years have gone, well, quite a few years have gone by, and my hands are not all that good, and I can't write very well anymore. So, I mean, my I can't even understand my own writing. It's arthritis. So I bought this little machine. It's fantastic. It's like a tiny mobile phone. It's brilliant. I'm still trying to master it, and I don't know if I will, but I'm hoping so. So I'm going to give it a whirl. So hold on to your hollyhocks. My name's Margaret Ellen Pitts. I was born on the 26th of April, 1929, at 172 Crystal Palace Road, East Dulwich, London, South East 22. You can follow Christopher on Twitter, at Christopher Hugh 2. It's spelled the Welsh way, so K-R-I-S-T-O-F-F-E-R-H-U-G-H-2 on Twitter. He's written a load of books as well, uh, which are all available to buy. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Griefcast. Uh, the show was recorded remotely from my living room and I think Chris's living room. It was edited by Kate Holland. The music was by The Glue Ensemble. And remember, you are not alone. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.